Welcome to the Heartland Free Church Sermon Podcast. We are so happy to have you joining us today. If you are a first-time listener or first-time visitor here at the church, we would love to get connected with you. You can click that link in the podcast summary. That is our online connection card. If you'd just like to learn more about us as a church, you can visit heartlandfree.com or you can download the Heartland app in whatever app store you prefer. Thank you again for joining us. We've got a fantastic message for you this morning, and we will be getting into that right now. One of the perplexing problems with the whole COVID crisis is that here we are well over a year into the pandemic, and we're still not sure if we're getting accurate information. Of course, we've seen this movie before, haven't we? The political left so wants a certain narrative to be true that they will sort of slant the facts to fit their worldview, demonize anyone who questions them, and then they will say things like, we have to follow the science. But the question is, whose science are we following? Why are one set of facts accepted, another set of facts disregarded? There's no question that people have died because of COVID. But there are a lot of questions about whether our response has been proportional. Is COVID worthy of surrendering our freedoms one by one? Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, freedom to work, freedom to own a business. Indeed, one of the most challenging issues we face in navigating life today is getting accurate information. What is true and what isn't? The way that journalists are trained today, completely different than the way they were trained 50 years ago. Any serious attempt at being objective has seemingly evaporated. There isn't a journalist out there today who will write an article about the negative health impact of the homosexual lifestyle. And there isn't a paper that would print it. Or try being a medical doctor who objects to the health costs of transgender surgeries or hormonal therapy. Try being a meteorologist who doesn't toe the party line on climate change. Follow the science, they say, but is it really science if I choose only the facts that agree with my ideology, and I throw away everything else. In 2005, Dr. Mary Schweitzer published her research showing soft tissue in the bones of a Tyrannosaurus rex. Her critics went crazy. They said, She's, it's got to be contaminated. So she and her team went to work. They found proteins such as collagen and blood vessels that are tangible and touchable, Could it be that that T-Rex isn't millions of years old, but only a few thousand? Could it be that it died in Noah's flood and God beautifully preserved it for us to testify to the accuracy of his word? Since 2005, soft tissue has been found in over 100 fossils that were presumed to be millions of years old. You want to read further on this? A great book here by Dr. Tim Clary, Dinosaurs, Marvels of God's Design. So we ask the question again, what 
is the truth. Now, obviously, we are finite human beings. No one has the truth about everything there is to know. But there is one truth that we dare not get wrong because it has eternal consequences. And that truth is about a man named Jesus. A man named Jesus who was born in a quiet little village of Bethlehem to an unwed teenager named Mary. It was a scandalous birth. But Mary and her fiancé at the time got married and proved to be devoted to each other and the God they served. They were wonderful parents. Joseph trained his son in the carpenter shop. At 30 years of age, this young man, Jesus, began to preach a message of true forgiveness and of new life that can be found in God. And Jesus did more than just preach. He healed the masses to prove that he was the long-awaited Messiah from God. On April 3rd, 33 AD, during the Jewish festival of Passover, at exactly 3 p.m. in the afternoon, at the very moment the priests were slaughtering the Passover lambs, only a few hundred yards away, Jesus died on a Roman cross with a sign hanging over his head declaring that he was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Forty, year, Forty days after that, he ascended into heaven, making at least 11 appearances to over 500 people. The Bible says he died in order to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. And in order that we can be completely forgiven by placing our faith in Jesus so that we can live an abundant life on this earth and an eternal life in the one to come. Heartland family, these are the facts that matter. I am staking my life on it. But there is also another fact that we have an enemy who has been trying his level best to fog up this simple truth for the last 2,000 years. And you know what? We have to admit that he's been amazingly successful. Most of the book of Jude details the various ways that those who have been deceived by Satan have been used to fog up the truth. Our mission here at Heartland is to cut through the fog, to win as many as possible to Jesus while there is still time. Today we come to verses 22 and 23. Jude challenges us to reach three groups of people who need Jesus. And make no mistake about it, it is a daunting task but not an impossible task if we rely on the Lord's power and not our own. These three groups are the confused, the convinced, and the corrupted. Let's look at them one by one. First, Jude calls on us to reach the confused. Be merciful to those who doubt, verse 22 says. 
Is it any wonder that we have doubters today? Anybody growing up in America the last 30 years has been fed a steady stream of ideologies that would be considered crazy at any other point in history. Like the lie that all roads lead to heaven. How can any professing Christian possibly believe that to be true? Why would Jesus go through such extreme torture at the cross, all of the humiliation that he endured, if there was another way to find eternal life? And what about his resurrection from the dead? Either it's true or it isn't. When I was a teenager, my life was upended by reading the book Evidence That Demands a Verdict. A couple of years ago, Sue and I were invited to spend the evening with Josh McDowell. And uh, I sat right next to Josh. I had him autograph my uh, book that had been authored way back in 1972. And to this day, I will often take down this book and turn to chapter 7. It's my go-to resource whenever I have doubts. It's entitled, The Trilemma, Liar, Lord, or Lunatic. Because Josh points out in this chapter, Jesus claimed to be God. Therefore, there are only three alternatives. The first is that he's a liar. If Jesus claimed to be God but knew he wasn't, he was a liar. And he was also a hypocrite because he taught others to be honest while living a colossal lie himself. So that's the first alternative, that Jesus was a liar. The second alternative is that he's a lunatic. (laughs) Maybe he really thought he was God, but he was sincerely deluded. Imagine if I told you today that I'm not only your pastor, but I'm God. everybody would start bolting for the door, right? My wife would be the first one out. (laughs) She can give you plenty of proof that I'm far, far less than God. So that's the second alternative. You see that he's a lunatic who thought he was God, but he was really just crazy. And yet there's a third possibility that Jesus really is who he claimed to be. He is, in fact, the Lord of the universe. Friends, that's your choice. Either Jesus is a bald-faced liar, or he's a crazy lunatic, or he is, in fact, the Lord of the universe and worthy of your worship. There's only one way to heaven. As the old hymn said, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Unfortunately, that's not the only thing that people are confused about today. I find a lot of people confused today about what what does it mean to truly follow Christ. You see, far more common out here in more rural America, small town America, is a preference for Christianity, but a disagreement about what that really means. In other words, how far can I drift away and still be a Christian? Do I have to believe in Adam and Eve? 
Do I have to believe there was a snake in the garden? Do I have to believe in Noah's Ark? Do I have to believe in Jonah the whale? Do I have to believe that Jesus walked on water? Do I have to believe there's a hell? And that maybe there's some people I love that are going to spend eternity there? Do I have to believe that sex is only for marriage? Is there any way around that? Others wonder, what's the minimum I can do and still make it? You know, can I just grab a get out of hell free card and just call it good? Can I just have my own little church out in the lake in my fishing boat, just me and God and hauling in the walleyes? Do I have to come to church? Do I have to sing these songs? Do I have to read this old book? Do I have to listen to some guy go on and on and on? (laughs) There's a lot of confusion out there, isn't there? Which is why the Bible says, be merciful to those who doubt. We are to have compassion, we're to have kindness, we're to have sympathy for those who doubt. God wants us to be patient. We need to create a culture where it's okay to have questions. When I was a little kid, I remember coming up to my mom and tugging on her apron, and I always had a million questions, you know? Mom, why is it this way? Why, why did this happen? And I still have a million questions, folks. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask the Lord. I'm going to, you know, I want to sit down with the Lord, have a glass of lemonade, and let's talk about some of it. Now, why did this happen the way it happened? The Bible says, have mercy on those who doubt. Many, if not most, of these doubters in our lives will come to faith if we're patient and we model a consistent and sincere walk with Jesus. So that's the first group, the confused. Now the second group is the convinced. (laughs) Uh, These are the ones who, uh, they're heading in the wrong direction and they really believe that they're on the right road. Okay, they're the convinced. And notice what the Bible says. Jude says, verse 23, snatch others from the fire and save them. The second group has gone beyond being confused. They've taken a careful look at all of the options. They are convinced that they are on the right path. They're a much harder group to reach. No longer are we called to show them mercy. Notice that? Verse 23, Jude uses rescue language. He says, snatch them from the fire and save them. The Greek word for snatch is harpazo. It's the same word that's used of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, where it says, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and remain will be snatched. We will be caught up. We will be harpazoed. (laughs) 
you can translate that as rescued. To be caught up, rescued with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we be with the Lord forever. You see, when the church is raptured, it is rescued from the wrath of God which will fall on the earth during the seven-year period of tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. During the tribulation, God's going to be pouring out his wrath on the earth. It begins in Revelation 6.16, which says, Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who can stand? Way back in 2007, I preached 77 sermons on the book of Revelation. We went verse by verse through the entire 22 chapters. I was a mild pre-tribber, at the beginning of the series, I was a devoted pre-tribber by the end of the series. And you know why? Because God's wrath is all over the tribulation period. God's gonna pour out three series of judgments. That's what the book of Revelation says. There will be the seal judgments, there will be the trumpet judgments, there will be the bowl judgments. And the Bible says over half of the world's population, which right now would be close to four billion, over half of the world's population is gonna perish during that time. But that still isn't as bad as what's referred to here in Jude 23. Because this verse is not talking about the fires of the tribulation period. That has a limit of seven years. This verse is talking about the fires of hell, and they will last eternally. So friends, this is serious stuff. Each of us here today, we have people in our social circle who need to be rescued from the fires of hell. Now here at Heartland, we use the expression, your Frank group, F-R-A-N-C, friends, relatives, acquaintances, neighbors, and coworkers. That's your Frank group. You have a Frank group that's unique to you, and I have a Frank group that's unique to me. So how do we snatch people that are in our Frank group, how do we snatch them from the fires of hell? Well, the first thing we have to do is pray for them. That's step one. The Apostle Paul models this for us in Romans 10, verse 1. It says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites. He's praying for his own Jewish people. He says, I pray that the Jewish people would be saved. Second, unless you've heard them give a clear profession of faith in Christ, you need to acknowledge the possibility that there are people in your friend group that may not be saved. Because we know from the scriptures, Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of, glory, of the glory of God. Pastor Denny has sinned. I need a savior. My wife needs a savior. My kids need a savior. You need a savior. Third, we need to ask God to open doors to talk to those in our Frank group 
who may not know Jesus. Ecclesiastes 3.7 says, there's a time to speak and a time to be silent. We need to know the difference. Fourth, when God opens the door, you know what? We gotta be bold. We gotta walk through the door. Deuteronomy 31.6, do not be do not be f- afraid of them. Uh, do not fear them or be in dread of them. We need to tell them that we love them. We want to see them in heaven with us. We need to say, I- I've, I've never heard you give a profession of your faith in Christ. Have you had a time in your life when you've done that? Friends, we dare not be silent when eternity is at stake, millions and billions of years. Now, fifth, if they've made a profession of faith but obviously are not living it out, maybe they're sleeping around with their boyfriend, girlfriend, maybe they're partying with other friends, the question is, are you willing to take a risk? Are you willing to say to them, hey, what's going on? What's going on? I'm concerned about you. Because, friends, here's what the Bible says. 1 John 2, verse 4. The one who says, I know God, but doesn't do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. We all know, of course, that it accomplishes nothing to continue to badger someone who's not interested not talking about that here. After all, Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before the swine. But friends, not saying anything, time after time after time, as you get together with them, as God seems to open the door, but you remain silent, that is far, far worse. Over and over again, Jesus stepped out and he took a risk. He even called the Pharisees a brood of snakes. Can you imagine that? They're the leading teachers in in all of Israel. Called them a brood of snakes. But at least two of those snakes, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who were Pharisees, came to faith in him. Friends, we have to be willing to take a risk. The Bible says, snatch others from the fire and save them. Now, there are those, they don't want to be snatched from the fire. That's on them. But if you are faithful, there will be some in your circle that are going to grab onto that lifeboat that is Jesus, and they're going to be saved. I love the way the Apostle James closes his book, chapter 5, verse 19. It says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Boy, does that verse say it all, doesn't it? It is possible to reach someone who is convinced that they're on the right road, but really they're heading in the wrong direction. It is possible to turn them around. 
through the power of God. May God help us to do that. So the second group we're called to reach are the convinced, those that are convinced that they're really on the right road. The third group we're called to reach has even ventured a step further than that. They are the corrupted. Now, as long as they have breath, we have to understand that no one is beyond the grace of God. Verse 23 continues with these words. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. You see, Jude is talking here about the hardcore enemies of God. Now, the first group we talked about was the confused. They're the ones that were wrestling with questions of faith. Many of them are, they're almost there. But there might be a few lingering questions that they have. That's the confused. The convinced are those who have taken a look at all the options. They've chosen to go in a different direction. Uh, maybe it's the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of riches, the pursuit of fame that has caused them to walk away from God. But often what happens is their lives, as they devote themselves to these things, fame and riches and, and pleasure, as they devote themselves to it, what often happens is their life takes a different turn, an unexpected turn, and things don't end up uh, work out the way that they had anticipated. And some of them will come running back to God. Many will at least be open to reconsidering. Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son, is one of those. Now, this is not true, however, of the corrupted. The corrupted are those that have jumped into it with both feet. They not only partake of evil, they're leading the charge. They are even recruiting others away from God. One of the most tragic changes that has occurred in America the last 20 years is the rise of what pollsters are calling the nuns. Now, we're not talking about Roman Catholic nuns here. We're talking about those that the pollsters will ask them, do you have any religious affiliation at all? And they will answer, none. But not only that, they're proud of it. <laughs> That's what's really changed. If we want to reach this group you know what? you got to be very careful. That's what Jude is teaching us here. He says, show mercy mixed with fear, lest we be drawn in to what they're doing. Okay, there's a risk there. These hardcore opponents of God need to see that we genuinely love them, but we don't hold to their worldview. They might even label us as haters. Folks, the last thing we want to do is confirm their suspicions. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with what? Gentleness and respect. Oh, it's so easy to forget the gentleness and respect part. It's far easier to just see them as the enemy. And yet over and over again, God surprises us and he breaks through to those who are shaking their fists at God. You see, they're not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. 
like the Apostle Paul, who calls himself the chief of sinners. He was actually persecuting the Christians, following them around, stalking them, arresting them, until Jesus turned him around. I love reading the testimonies of these hardcore opponents of God who are now vibrant believers. We must always remember no one is beyond the grace of God. Like C.S. Lewis, who was a hardened atheist, who had an abrupt conversion at age 33, he went on to write mere Christianity. You know who was key in turning his life around to Jesus? It was J.R.R. Tolkien, the Lord of the Rings guy. Years later, C.S. Lewis led another atheist to Christ. Her name was Joy Davidman. Led her to faith, later married her, sort of as a favor so she could work in the UK, and then later fell in love with her after he had married her. It's a very interesting story. If you want to see the movie Shadowlands with Anthony Hopkins and Deborah Winger, it's excellent. It tells that whole story. Countless atheists have come to faith after reading mere Christianity, including a young scientist named Francis Collins, who today serves as the director of the National Institutes of Health. Outstanding believer. Over the years, I have told you many stories of people who were hardened enemies of God that are now serving him. People like Chuck Colson, President Nixon's hatchet man, who said he would run over his own grandma to elect Nixon. Now, for many years, serving Christ, recently passed on to glory. There's also Lee Strobel, an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. His wife was instrumental in leading him to Christ. You can uh, see the whole story, the movie, The Case for Christ, also a book. And then there's David Limbaugh, the younger brother of talk radio's Rush Limbaugh. David is an outstanding follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I hope we'll see Rush in heaven. Uh, He professed faith in Christ, uh, didn't always display the fruit of the Spirit, could be very, very harsh, brutal on those he opposed. Uh, With David, however, (laughs) there are no doubts. David is a warrior for Jesus. In the last decade, he's written a pile of books defending Christianity, including my favorite, Jesus on Trial. A lawyer affirms the truth of the gospel. You see, what all of these people give us, folks, is they give us hope. That no one is beyond the grace of God. And that includes the most hardened unbeliever in your family circle. But Jude cautions us. We have to be careful as we engage with them. We must remember that just as we're seeking to win them to Christ, they're seeking to draw us away from Christ. That's why the Bible says that we are to be hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. 
Jude uses extremely graphic language here. In the Greek, this is referring to hating their filthy undergarments, or what we would call your dirty underwear. In a sense, this passage is saying that we need to hate the sin, their dirty underwear, while loving the sinner. When I read this, it brought my mind back to a paper I wrote for a political science class at Bethel College. It was about juvenile prostitution. I think it was mainly those that are uh, 18 and 19 of age. Uh, but uh, it was about, about that in the state of Minnesota. This was back in the 1970s and 80s. There was a Minneapolis cop at the time. His name was Al Palmquist. I tried to find out if Al Palmquist is still living today. Uh, but can you imagine this? He was doing an amazing job leading prostitutes to Christ. Isn't that amazing? I remember I was going to do a research paper on this, and my professor, uh, Bill Johnson at Bethel, he sat me down. He said, Denny, this is a dark world. This is a dark world. It's a dark world anyway, but this is even a darker part of our dark world. And he just cautioned me. He said, be very careful as you do your research on this. And I'm glad those were good words because we have a vicious enemy. I close with this. The greatest conversion story of all may very well be that of my hero, Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln was born into a devout Christian family. When he was 15, his parents and sister joined the Pigeon Creek Baptist Church. Abe flat out refused to join. Even worse, he would mimic the preacher when they would come home until his dad would finally shut him up. <laughs> As a young man, Abe was the jokester extraordinaire. And one of his favorite stories was about the preacher who had a lizard craw crawling up his leg while he was preaching, started to strip while he was behind the pulpit. <laughs> Abe got a kick out of that. Historians debate whether calling Abe an atheist may be a bit too harsh. It wasn't for his law partner, William Herndon. He, hired, he hung out with him all the time. He was a fellow religious skeptic. And in, in fact, William Herndon made it his life mission after Lincoln was assassinated to prove that Lincoln was not a Christian. I have Herndon's book. Very interesting. What Herndon didn't know, however, is what happened to Lincoln after he, after he became president. All of the evidence points to a true conversion after Lincoln moved into the White House. And it truly was a team effort. There were many, many Christians speaking into his life. Clearly, our president was one of the perishing. He needed to be rescued. And God marshaled his gospel warriors to melt the hardened soul of Abraham Lincoln. Two events led to his salvation. The first was the death of his 11-year-old son, Willie. This was in 1862, about a year into his presidency. It rocked Abraham Lincoln like nothing ever had. He loved Willie. Two weeks after Willie died, a pastor from New York visited Abe and sought to comfort him. The pastor said, Mr. President, your son 
is alive. He's in paradise. Do you remember, sir, the passage in the Gospels where it says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living? Lincoln replied to him, alive, alive, surely you mock me. No, sir, the pastor said, believe me, it is the most comforting doctrine in the Christian church, founded on the words of Christ himself. Friends, the light was coming on for Abraham Lincoln. Three separate pastors testify what happened next. The clincher was when Lincoln walked among the graves of the 50,000 that perished at Gettysburg. Lincoln later said, and I quote, when I walked among those graves, I resolved to give my heart to God. And since then, I do love Jesus, unquote. He came to faith in Christ. I believe we're going to see old Abe in heaven someday. I'd love to sit down and visit with him. Part of the reason for this happening was a group of believers who were absolutely determined to rescue the perishing. You see, friends, no one is beyond the grace of God. Do you really believe that? 